0: And welcome to a brand spanking new series of We Are History with me, Angela Barnes. And me, John O'Farrell. We're back, John. So I've
1: chosen today's subject, Angela. You have indeed.
0: Um, What have you chosen, John? Well, I
1: chose this because I went to the theatre, You did not. I did. I saw a play. You're so clever. This is how cultured I am. It's quite different from going to a football match, you know. You can't just shout at them for being shit. Is that right? I was asked to stop doing that by the Ashes 10 minutes in. Um, no, I just, of course, because it wasn't shit actually, it was a very good play. And the play I went to see was Best of Enemies by the uh, prolific and very talented James Graham. And that was all about the TV debates between Gore Vidal and William Buckley during the run-up to the 1968 American presidential election.
0: Pair of intellectuals uh, coming from very different angles.
1: Yeah, can yeah. you imagine it now? Let's have two intellectuals talking for an hour about the principles of politics. So yeah, no, we just have smoked. Piers
0: Morgan and someone from Love Island discussing politics <laughs> now on GB News. That's the nearest <laughs> we've got to the Vidal Buckley yes, exactly. debates now.
1: Exactly, but it made me realise what an incredible, and whilst I was sitting there, you know, I realised what an incredible and important and very divisive election that was. Mm. And it sort of set the tone. I think this is why James Graham chose it. Um, it's at a tone in terms of its divisiveness and the rise of the right wing in America. Mm-hmm. And There's just so much to talk about, Angela, that frankly I don't know how we're going to fit it all in. No, Let's it's... just talk really fast so that nothing gets left up.
0: OK, right. OK, we're on, we're on double speed. Um... Yeah.
1: So, yes, 1968, tumultuous year in so many ways. Um, in 1967 they'd had the Summer of Love yeah. and that soon gave way to the Autumn of Chlamydia.
0: I like the way that in the notes that you've done for us, John, you've given yourself the best joke there. I see what you've done. It's actually
1: no, it's a stolen joke. Actually, I nicked it from the Onion. So I thought, oh, right, okay, oh, that's right. I was going to give <laughs> it. I was going to give it to Angela. I thought, no, somebody <laughs> might go, oh, you've nicked that joke, Angela. She goes, John gave me that joke. So <laughs> thank you, Onion, for that gag. That's um, a good gag. Yes. So, talk about
0: 1968, Angela. <clears throat> so May 1968, pretty tumultuous time all over the place, really, wasn't it? In Europe, especially, it looked like there's going to be a revolution in France again. Uh, with the students rioting, being attacked by police. Yeah. There's a general strike. General de Gaulle fleed the country in fear. Uh, in Czechoslovakia, the Prague Spring was brutally put down with Soviet tanks. And of course, in Britain, Gardner's World is broadcast for the first time. Um, Revolutionary. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, even in London, <laughs> we saw these massive anti-Vietnam demonstrations, which had police clash with... Demonstrators outside the American embassy. I think we might end up doing a an episode about the student protests in '68 because
1: we maybe we sort of individually
0: came keep... up with plans to do something about 1968, didn't we? But um, you had the by meinhof Meinhof in Germany and all that was happening.
1: Every time we touch on the subject, we say we're well, doing a thing about that, and if we've
0: we've got a backup. That up, one was do... on my list. I said it was on my list, John. It's we're doing it. We're doing it. All right. Well,
1: that's a, uh, we'll see. We'll see, listeners. Um. Yes, but all the tension and all the divisiveness came to a head in the US presidential election of that year. Mm -hmm. Um, So just a bit of context running up to American politics uh, before 68. The Democrats had sort of been in power throughout the 1960s. At the turn of the decade, JFK had narrowly beaten Richard Nixon and the Democrats were in the White House. Uh, Nixon had been VP, the vice president under Eisenhower in the 50s. In fact, his daughter would end up marrying Eisenhower's grandson, David, Mm. and Camp David is named after him.
0: Ah! Did you know that? I don't think I did know that. Oh, it's one of those things I think I must have known that, but maybe I didn't. No,
1: David David Eisenhower will feature in this story, weirdly, young David Eisenhower.
0: So in 1960, Tricky Dicky fails to get the top job himself, famously losing the first televised debate. Because he looked a bit shifty and sweaty. Yes. And when people listened on the radio, they thought he'd done all right in the debate. Yeah. But anyone watching it's,
1: it, it's he, like, Ugh. he's
0: not an appealing looking man, was he, Richard Nixon? Sort of. No, it's yeah. sweaty
1: upper lip. Yeah. 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 And then um, after that, in 1962, he tried to sort of uh, keep his political career going by standing to be governor of California. And he lost by five points, by five percentage points. And he, he refused to face the press afterwards. Mm. And then he you know his advisor says, You've got to, you gotta you gotta go down and talk to them. So he changed his mind and he went down and did an impromptu press conference, unscripted.
0: Uh-oh. He went, You want,
1: he went, Yeah, danger, he's had a few drinks, you know. And he was like, You won't you won't have Nixon to kick around anymore, gentlemen. This is my last press conference. Oh and that was it. He'd retired from politics. That night, ABC News did a special programme entitled The Political Obituary of Richard M. Nixon.
0: Spoiler alert, uh, he did not, in fact, retire from politics. Exactly right.
1: <laughs> do you know what the M stands for in Richard M. Nixon, Angela?
0: Oh, I don't know if I do. Michael.
1: Milhouse.
0: Mil- oh, no, I did know that, because that's why yeah. Millhouse from The Simpsons is Millhouse, isn't it?
1: No, no, it's the other way around. They named Richard after the character <laughs> in The Simpsons. Is that I right? Think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: So uh, the Democrats won a landslide in the election of 1964, as we know, uh, in the wake of JFK's assassination. Yep. And the Republicans putting up an extremely right-wing candidate in the shape of Barry Goldwater. Boo. Uh, Boo, Barry Goldwater. (laughs) And so JFK's former deputy LBJ was re-elected, that's Lyndon B. Johnson, was re-elected with a huge mandate to push through major social reforms, equal rights legislature. Everyone presumed that LBJ would run again when 1968 came around and that he would win. Yes,
1: but the Vietnam War was dragging on and on. The Tet Offensive by the North Vietnamese had made big inroads and it was pretty clear that no victory for South Vietnam and its American allies looked in sight.
0: Yeah, and people were really taking to the streets, marching. They were chanting, hey, hey, LBJ, how many kids did you kill today? Which is not a good look for a (laughs) Democrat candidate. Um and so when it came to election year, LBJ faced a challenge for the Democratic ticket that yes. you know, a few years yes. earlier it didn't look like that would happen.
1: Yes. So there was an anti war senator called Eugene McCarthy, and he announced that he would be seeking the democratic nomination for president. So yeah. Uh, Not Eugene to be McCarthy
0: was with rabid. Right winger Joe McCarthy of yes. House of Un American Activities fame. We did an episode on that. Go back and listen to it.
1: Yes, not McCarthyism. This is no. usually McCarthy, anti war. He he McCarthy's an interesting character, actually. He considered himself something of a poet. And, and during this campaign, he quoted his own poem <laughs> I am alone in the land of the Aardvark's. Oh dear. I am walking west. All the Aardvark's are walking east. So, something to think about there, Angela.
0: When he was asked by Johnny Carson, what sort of president would you be? He said, I think I would be adequate. Which I suppose is a step up for the aardvark poem. But I think if I know anything about Americans and American politics, one, I mean, they won't even elect a woman. They're not going to elect a poet. Are they? And, I don't know. And secondly, they don't want their president being honest about their abilities. They want their president being triumphalist. Absolutely, Absolutely. So... All these young hippies and beatniks who were behind Eugene, they wanted him to win, they started canvassing for him. And they were so determined to help him in his campaign that they actually shaved off their beards, cut off their long hair. And the campaign, they called it Clean for Gene. Because, you know, if a scruffy hippie approached your ordinary American voter, (laughs) they'd probably recoil in horror. So they cleaned themselves up, took to the doorstep
1: this is what I used to do when I was organising the Labour Party seriously
0: <laughs> I always go,
1: you are not going out in that fucking Clash t-shirt to knock on the <laughs> to knock on the door so I I lent somebody a suit once I said put this suit on and go out you're knocking on these posh doors asking them to vote Labour don't do it with your fucking nose piercings and your <laughs> ripped Ripped Clash t-shirt so I'm with the Clean for Jean campaign yes you've got to try to persuade people I think it was um uh Karma for Starmer
0: Short. does that work no that doesn't Karma. work uh, I'm, trying, I'm trying to, i was trying
1: to, no I can't do it. Yeah. Um, uh, clear for Keir. Yeah,
0: <laughs> sort of works.
1: Uh, when I, uh, no, it was uh, George Bernard Shaw who said, if you are proposing radical ideas, do so in conventional dress. So, yeah. that's the, yeah. I think that's true. Um, yeah. So, yes, anti-war candidate Eugene McCarthy stood in the New Hampshire primary and he shocked everyone by coming a really strong second behind LBJ. Mm. Now, in the wings was a Robert Kennedy the former Attorney General, I think he was, and, of course, the brother of JFK. Now, he had been reluctant to stand. He didn't want to stand against LBJ, but now he saw that there was a big political appetite for change, so he decided to join the fight. So in mid-March, Robert Kennedy declared his own candidacy, which was a big slap in the face for the sitting president, who everyone had expected to be the candidate.
0: Yeah, Bobby and LBJ hated each other, didn't they? Um, Bobby had never wanted his brother to pick LBJ as his vice president back in 1960. But it had actually been quite an astute move on uh, JFK's part to get a Texan and a southerner um, to be a different kind of Democrat, to appeal to those you know, southern yeah. voters rather than you know the New England privileged progressive that the, the Kennedys represented. Yes, yeah, so that's, so- yeah, that's
1: exactly right, yeah. So the polls were showing that LBJ was trailing in third place in the upcoming Wisconsin primary. Mm. And so he faced the humiliating prospect of being a Democratic president who didn't get the Democratic nomination. Oops. He also had health issues to contend with. He had a bit of a dodgy heart. So two weeks later, at the end of March 1968, LBJ makes a shock announcement. He goes on television to declare that he would not be seeking re-election to the White House.
0: Politician gives up power, not something you see every day. It's not, is it? Um, Just saw it in New Zealand. jump-before-your-pushed move, that one, though, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, I think he was exasperated by the job. And the war in Vietnam and the infighting of the Democratic Party. And he just couldn't stomach it anymore. Mm. So suddenly, uh, Bobby is odds-on favourite to win, you know, in America. Not that I can get my online gambling account to work when I'm in America, but you know what <laughs> I mean.
0: <laughs> so charismatic Bobby Kennedy is now a pretty strong candidate and a man everyone expects to become the next president. Five years after his popular brother had been shot dead by a lone marksman, uh, and not a second gunman on the grassy knoll, John, we're not taking questions about conspiracy theories at this time. I'm not entertaining it. We're not going there.
1: (laughs) Well, but was it? Was there a Sloan government? Was it a Lone government? Oh, Oh, no. And the podcast has veered off. It's disappeared over the hill. They've gone. We've lost them. No, I mean, you've said that he was odds-on favourite and a strong candidate, but that's because it's in my notes. And I- yeah. <laughs> but it's actually arguable whether it was a front-runner because the uh, the vice-president, Hubert Humphrey, was a, has a lot of uh, delegates already sewn up. Mm. Back then, the party machine chose the delegates and it was a lot less democratic than it is now.
0: Maybe and because that- of that.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, actually, no, this is what happened in '68 is why it all got changed. So uh, Hubert Humphrey has the president's appointees you know, uh, ready to nominate him. But it might be that um, so much momentum gets behind a Bobby Kennedy candidacy that he'll become the candidate. Let's see what happens. Yes. But Richard Nixon is depressed and pessimistic about his chances. He's not the only Republican hoping to get the GOP nomination. Former B-movie actor Ronald Reagan. You've all forgotten him. He was putting his name forward.
0: (laughs) Really? Ronald (laughs) Reagan? That guy off the shit movies? Really, <laughs> the chimp
1: the chip movie. What? You can't be joking. No way. And he was, he was too right wing. Actually, after the right wing Goldwater, they thought we've got to try someone a bit more moderate. Yeah. Well, the governor of New York, Nelson Rockefeller. Um, he was vying for the nomination. Do you remember that song? Oh, Cinderella Rockefeller.
0: Well, watch out, John's going to sing. Brace yourselves. I, I've, I've, I, <laughs> you're know my I know I'm going to Cinderella. You're my
1: Rockefeller. My Rockefeller. Rockefeller. We oh, had yeah, it. Yeah. We, yeah, it was that year it was released. Ah. Uh, but anyway. Rockefeller would end up anyway, he didn't get the nomination, but he would end up as Vice President under Gerald Ford, in case any listeners are interested. Oh, you're not.
0: No. So, in April 68, Bobby is campaigning in Indiana, when he had to tell the crowd to lower their banners. They were cheering him, they were whooping and whistling, and he had to ask them to please be quiet, because he had to tell them some very sad news, and Martin Luther King had been shot and killed. So... He's on stage campaigning when he gets the news and has to let people know. Um, Terrible screams come from the crowd. He makes a plea for peace that black people don't turn on white people. He spoke of the anger he felt when his own brother was shot and killed. It's It's a bit different, Bobby, a bit different. But, of course, there are riots across America, a whole week of riots in over 100 cities, and all this time Richard Nixon is selling himself as the law and order candidate.
1: Yes, and especially with the assassin, James L. Ray, was not captured.
0: Yes.
1: Uh, and he went on the run, finally arrested in June. Do you know where he was arrested, Angela? Uh,
0: I don't think I do know where he was arrested, do I?
1: Heathrow Airport. Was he really? Yeah, isn't that interesting? Yeah. See, American cops couldn't catch him, but...
0: Good yeah, on, British English Bobby did.
1: Bobby, the English Bobby went, hang on a minute there, sir. <laughs> Come back here.
0: Is that how it uh,
1: happened, John? <laughs> no, it's a uh, dictionary. Hello, hello, hello. Yeah, hello. What's going on here? <laughs> I don't think we should be making light of this subject. Sorry, no. uh, but this was of course not to be the last shocking assassination of the year. Uh, Robert Kennedy's campaign was like building up momentum, and the biggest prize in the primaries would be California. And on June the fifth, he wins the state, and he looks like he might be unstoppable. Mm. So Nixon watched the California result, and he went to bed early, utterly dejected. Now, this is where his son, David Eisenhower, said, well, I'll stay up and watch the figures, sir, and I'll give you a full report in the morning, sir. Because they always called each other sir back then, didn't they? An hour or two later, it's a tap on the bedroom door, and David Eisenhower wakes up Nixon to tell him that Kennedy had been shot.
0: Nixon says, no, that was three years ago, (laughs) four years ago. No, no, it's the other one. The other one. Yes. No, yes, yeah. Robert Kennedy had been given a speech at the ambassador's hotel. He'd gone down through the kitchens and it was there that he was shot at close range by a Palestinian Christian who had Jordanian citizenship. who was furious about RFK support for Israel in the 67 Arab-Israeli war. Yeah. Lots of conspiracy theories about this assassination, uh, that two guns were used and there was a mystery second gunman, there's bound to be really...
1: Um, yes. Yes, I actually remember this assassination happening, Angela. I'm that old. Wow. Um, Yeah, I was. uh, I would have been six years old. I can now work out. But we were on holiday in Wales, and we're in this cafe, and I remember the waiter confirming to my parents that Bobby Kennedy had died. Mm. And I really strongly remember my parents' sadness, and it was very much their their sadness was very much in terms of the tragedy of a family that lost one son, Mm. losing another. It was viewed through the lens of the JFK assassination. At six years old, I wasn't thinking, hmm, what will this do to the Democratic nomination process?
0: But you not, John. <laughs> but, uh, That's exactly no, the sort no. of child I <laughs> imagine that you yeah. were. <laughs>
1: um, but yeah, but historians are divided on whether Robert would have definitely won the Democratic nomination and then the election. Mm. I think the heart of it would have been getting the nomination, actually, because Hubert Humphrey, the vice president, had the party machinery on his side. And as I say, the nomination process was less Democratic then. The yeah. delegates were selected, not elected.
0: But it might be that... Bobby's charisma and the association with his brother would have got him the nomination in the end.
1: Yeah. But when it came to the time to select the two main candidates, the summer was hotting up, the soundtrack was Street Fighting Man by the Rolling Stones and Revolution by the Beatles. Vietnam War was raging, the Soviet Union invades Czechoslovakia and the third and final phase of the Tet Offensive was launched by North Vietnam. And back in the USA, people were burning their Vietnam draft papers.
0: So now we come to the conventions. A riot, a pig, two public intellectuals almost coming to blows on a TV discussion programme. That about sums them up, doesn't it? (laughs) Hello, welcome back to We Are History. So uh, we are in summer 1968, August The Republicans have a very dull convention in Miami. Well, I imagine a Republican convention is always pretty dull. Um, (laughs) uh, At which they select Richard Nixon, surprise, surprise, not at all, to be the presidential candidate on the first ballot. Fourth time he's been on the ticket, uh, 52 and 56 as vice president, 60 as candidate. He selects Spiro Agnew from Maryland, Uh, so he could take care of all the dirty racist stuff that the presidential candidate might not want to be seen doing.
1: Yes, yes, Um, right. He blamed all the riots after uh, Martin Luther King's assassination on black community leaders, rather than, say, the white bloke who shot him.
0: Yeah, quite. He was quite a... Yeah, we had quite a downfall, didn't he, Spiro Agnew, in the end? He did.
1: He had it come into him. But Nixon's campaign slogan was, Nixon's the one. So a lot of, lot of polity in one short phrase. Yeah, um, and there's a terrible, yeah, there's a terrible song, which they sing this over and over again. This sort of 1960s American woman's going, Nixon's the one, Nixon's the one. You can hear it on YouTube if you oh could be bothered. God.
0: <laughs> so now all the Democrats have to do, all they have to do, John, is very simple. is hold yep. an orderly, dignified convention themselves, show their best side to the nation. And they're going to be in a good shout of holding the White House, right?
1: Do we think that's what happened,
0: Andrew?
1: <laughs> oh. do, we, do we think you can rely on the left to, 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 to pull it all together and, you know... To, to, uh, to, to their, come together,
0: their... put their differences aside. <laughs> yes. The left's really good, the good at doing Labor. that, John.
1: It's always worked for the Labour Party.
0: <laughs> yeah, it, it,
1: it didn't really pan out like that. The, the Democratic National Convention was probably the most chaotic, bad-tempered, divisive... And outside the hall, the most violent, ugly political convention there's ever been. And I went to Labour conference in the 80s. So, yeah, (laughs) Derek Derek Hatton and Militant have got nothing on this, Angela.
0: (laughs) So inside the convention, the parties split on the wall. While outside, thousands of activists have descended on Chicago to protest about Vietnam, as well as proposing an entirely new type of society based on peace and love and drugs and tie-dye T-shirts...
1: Exactly, yeah, long um, hair, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and and being the sort of young man that you don't want your daughter to marry. And these so, were the those are the yippies. yippies. So this, I always thought yippies was like another nineteen sixties word for hippies, yeah. but actually it comes from their political party, the Youth International Party (YIP), ah. founded by among others Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin, who were like these super cool counterculture heroes. And they turned up outside the Democratic National Convention with their party's own nomination for president. And that was a 145-pound pig named Pigasus. <laughs>
0: <Does> it it? is. <laughs> You've
1: got to have a pig. Yeah. a pig. But they said, one pig's as good as another, is what they said. Yeah. <laughs> so Pigasus the pig was paraded around in Chicago outside the Democratic Convention. They demanded that the pig be treated as a legitimate candidate with U.S. Secret Service protection and White House foreign policy briefings.
0: <laughs> Oh, why do do the left do this to themselves? Oh,
1: my God. Um, Yeah, well, so Jerry Rubins, in the process of reading the pig's acceptance speech for him, when the pig was arrested by the police and seven yippies were arrested with him, the pig was placed in a police wagon and taken away to the Chicago anti cruelty Society. And the the seven were locked up in cells and a policeman came to them and said, you guys are going to jail for the rest of your life. The pig squealed on you.
0: Nice. That's not a bad joke for a copper, is it? (laughs) You know, you don't expect much, do you?
1: (laughs) But in the court case, when they were asked where they got their pig, they described going from farm to farm in Illinois and asking where they could get a pig. And the Defence counsel said, did anyone suggest a police station? (laughs) (laughs) Objection, overruled.
0: (laughs) So the Yippies also had another part to their plan, John. It wasn't just, let's take a pig along and that'll do it. They also had a plan to send these super hot hippie girls to seduce the delegates at the convention and these super hot well down studs to seduce the wives of the delegates. And and the idea was to give them all LSD, so they were tripping while they were voting. Sounds like a great party. (laughs) Um, Hoffman told the TV cameras, this sort of uh, queen of the yippies, Uh, She said, we're dirty, smelly, grimy and foul. We will piss and shit and fuck in public. We will be constantly stoned or tripping on every drug known to man.
1: Exactly right. Abbey Hoffman was a bit. I had some
0: friends like that at university.
1: (laughs) There was always one, wasn't there? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Mayor Daly took all this uh, seriously and was convinced that he had to stop a a revolution in his city. (laughs) The city of Chicago lobbied hard to get the convention. The Democratic mayor, Daley, had said to LBJ that he would make sure that any demonstrators did not get anywhere near the convention centre. He was basically, Daley was a thug and a bigot. And the behaviour of the Chicago police under his stewardship is sort of one of the big scandals of this story. And his, yeah. you know, his heavy-handed tactics shot the media and many news journalists were beaten with police batons as well as yippies and hippies. And,
0: and even inside yeah. the hall, security guards were roughing up journalists who tried to talk to the wrong delegates Dan Rather, Walter Cronkite, who were nationally respected figures, were witnessing the violence, and in Dan Rather's case, being subjected to it.
1: Yeah, and it was reported that Daly had told the police only to beat up the people campaigning for the candidates he didn't want. If they were lobbying for Hubert Humphrey, they should be left alone. Wow. So Daley was actually trying to persuade LBJ to re-enter the race because everything was turning so chaotic. And he had a load of placards, especially printed, that said, We love LBJ. And Johnson did actually discuss the prospect of coming back into the race as a way of ending the division. But I think by then, things have gone too far, Angela.
0: Yeah. When it became clear that there's an actual battle happening outside the convention hall, uh, speakers tried to get to the stage to condemn what was happening outside.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There was a senator called uh, Senator Ribicoff, and he used his nominating speech from McGovern to report the violence going on outside the convention hall. And, um, he said, with George McGovern as president of the United States, we wouldn't have to have Gestapo tactics on the streets of Chicago. And Mayor Daly, who was their host, responded by shouting, fuck you, you Jew son of a bitch. Wow. Which is, wow.
0: I, mean, I mean, it's all very dignified. Wow, the mayor of Chicago. Yeah. Shippy. Yeah, all very dignified and respectable. And um, to discuss the convention and the issues around it, ABC TV channel had this great idea getting two diametrically opposed intellectuals to bring some civilised debate to the table, John.
1: Yes, that's exactly. This is the play I just saw, Gore Vidal and William Buckley. Um, And I will tweet out a bit of the debate.
0: Should we explain a little bit about who they are? Because there'll be people who don't know who Gore Vidal and William...
1: Yeah, I I didn't know who they were, really. I knew knew they were writers, but yeah, go
0: on. Well, um, William Buckley was sort of an extreme... I don't know loads, but was a sort of extreme right-wing... He'd supported Barry Goldwater, hadn't he? I think.
1: Yes, and he he was the editor of the I think the uh, New Review or something. Something um, uh,
0: the National Review. Um, na- yes, yeah, National Review. Review. Is it National
1: and it was he um, was yeah. sort of part of the intellectual uh, renaissance of the American right. Yeah,
0: so he was able to present those those sort of quite simplistic right wing racist ideas with an air of intellectualism In a, yes, and a narrative, narrative that it was you know and yeah. he was he basically was quite. Open in saying that black people were less than white people.
1: Yes, yes, and um, Gore Vidal was a gay bisexual novelist, I think. Uh, author. Yes, bisexual was he? Okay, and um, he'd written s- stuff that was quite yeah. saucy and was uh, you know uh, slammed, and which actually comes up during the uh, debate. But these two, they're going for each other, you know, hammer and tongs, and uh, interrupting each other, and the climaxes... With Buckley saying to Vidal, stop calling me a crypto Nazi, you queer, and go back to your pornography. You
0: don't get that when our like, prime ministerial oh
1: debates, do you? <laughs> you don't get that with David Cameron and <laughs> Miller do you? He threatened to punch him. He goes, You'll be plastered. And he's, he threatened to hit him. This is out going out live, Angela. And the broadcaster was like, Oh my God, this is terrible. Two writers hurling personal insights at each other on national television. What are the, what are the ratings going to be like? Of, of course, the ratings they did. went through the roof who <laughs> wants yeah. debate boring writers calling each other queer and nazis and threatening to punch one another in the face that's what the voters want to see when they're yeah. trying to decide how to vote uh, yeah and i think the point the play i was i saw was making that it's it's sort of when we realize that angry conflict is better for the ratings and makes more money than constructive debate is
0: that's really depressing is it because this is the moment when you realize the public aren't interested in you know the the sort of sensible debate is what they just want to assume their politicians are doing and they don't have to worry about as soon as you make entertainment out of politics, yeah. that's, there's a direct line from that yes. to what happens on Twitter and comments under articles and GB news yes. and all of these sensationalist yes. things, which are what grab people's attention because day to day politics is boring as it should be. Yeah. Yeah. It's the business, it's a business of governing of and running a yeah, country. So is, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I'd say the only other time, I would say, there's been such gripping televisual debate between writers of left and right is the 2005 election when BBC Breakfast pitched conservative Frederick Forsyth, who wrote The Day of the Jackal, against Labour's John Oh, yes, I I
0: remember it well. I imagine James Graham's writing another play about it as we speak.
1: (laughs) Plus there was Rosie Boycott for the Lib Dems. But at no, at no point did any of us call the other a crypto Nazi or a queer. or At to least not them to them their in faces. The
0: face. <laughs> that was in the, in the bar afterwards, wasn't it, John? <laughs>
1: exactly. So exactly. the front
0: runner for the Democratic nomination was Hubert Humphrey, the current vice president. His nickname was Happy Humphrey because he talks about happiness. and so this being a joyful time, you yeah. know, joyful while wo- 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 yeah. blood's dripping yeah. from the protesters' heads, having been beaten <laughs> by the police, the media <laughs> and journalists being attacked by police batons. He's in the middle of it all going. He's like the, the father of the bride in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. You know, everyone's killing everyone. And he's, but this is supposed to be a happy occasion. Let's not bicker about who killed who. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, guys. <laughs> exactly.
1: So happy Humphrey, they called him. <laughs> but there was a third Democrat who represented a strand of Democrat thinking uh, that on this side of the Atlantic, we find hard to understand today because we think of Democrats as being the liberals range against the conservative Republicans. But you have to understand that the Democrats in the South were not the liberal do-gooders that we think of today. They represented the old South, uh, You know, white, blue collar workers who were against civil rights, against equality with black people. They were poor, but black people were even poorer and they didn't want to share what little power or whatever they had with them. So Governor George Wallace of Alabama, he challenged LBJ in 64 in the primaries and was completely opposed to all the equality legislation that the president had introduced. George Wallace, it's a strong word, Angela, but I'm going to use it. I think he was a little bit of a racist. I think you could be right.
0: We have this idea, don't we, that Democrats are sort of... The liberals and the The anti-racist and all of that. But that's been only since the second half of the 20th century, really, that that's...
1: Yeah, yeah. um, Well, yeah. Well, yeah. that.
0: So uh, he broke away from the Democrats, George Wallace, and ran for the presidency under the flag of the American Independent Party, uh, which is basically a white supremacist party with strong sort of law and order and those anti-communist vibes.
1: Yeah. He was getting a lot of support, uh, in you know that part of America until he chose his old running mate, the famous Air Force General Curtis LeMay, whose nicknames included <laughs> Old Iron Pants, the Demon, <laughs> Bombs Away LeMay. <laughs> <Is> <laughs> he all, quite a I think it
0: might
1: have been. He rather screwed things up by talking very openly about using nuclear Jeez. bombs against the North Vietnamese. And George Wallace kept trying to shut him up and bring him in. He's going, "What my deputy is trying to say is, we should remind them that we have the capability to use nuclear weapons." No, and drop him, was like, "No, no, him. drop the bomb. Nuke them back to the Jock. Nuke them back to the Stone oh Age." God. Is an actual quote. And um, and General May, General May is using a <laughs> metaphor <laughs> no, new here. No, nuke no, the bastards. And then he goes, and then he goes, actually, nuclear bombs aren't so bad. I'd rather die in a nuclear explosion than be stabbed with a rusty knife. It's quicker, and we all oh, die in the end just anyway. Stop it's like Curtis, May... <laughs> Can you shut up? So another thing, another nickname for him was the Big Cigar, and they reckon that LeMay was the rabid cigar-chomping general that Dr Strangelove was based
0: oh, on. Oh, that makes sense, yeah. So the polls had shown that the Democrats were ahead all through June and July, and it was only when they got into August that the Republicans began to pull ahead, so after the convention. There's no TV debate between Nixon and Humphrey uh, because Nixon wouldn't agree to one after it'd gone so horribly wrong for him and everyone lost trust in him when they could see his face back in 1960. He decided not to go down that road again.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, sorry, I I, I neglected to say in my notes that Humphrey, of course, got the nomination and it was all fixed. Uh, Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, uh, uh, Wallace had broken away and uh, Eugene McCarthy had not got sufficient votes. So it's between... Nixon and Hubert Humphrey polls were narrowing as election day got closer. The weekend before the election, LBJ announced a halt in the bombing of North Vietnam. The Halloween peace, they called it. Uh, Peace negotiations have been going on in Paris since May. And now uh, Johnson helped his vice president with the timing of the peace announcement.
0: She's pretty cynical when you think, you know, because they could have stopped the bombing a bit earlier. Might have saved the lives of some innocent Vietnamese civilians. But, you know, no, we'll stop it now because uh, that's when it helps my VP with his presidential yeah, candidacy. I can but that's yeah. small fry compared to what Nixon did next.
1: Now this story only came out this century. And in my opinion, it's far worse than anything Nixon yeah. did during Watergate. Using a secret contact in South Vietnam, he got the president of South Vietnam in Saigon, uh, he got to him and told him not to accept the peace treaty terms, promising he'd get a much better terms under a Nixon presidency. And, and the weird thing was that Johnson knew this was going on because the CIA were bugging the intermediaries. And he rang Nixon to tell him he knew what he was doing. And Nixon thought this meant his own phone was bugged. But anyway, the result was that the South Vietnam uh, delegation walked out of the peace talks in the week of the election and Humphrey's peace bounce was uh, demolished because Nixon had secretly thrown a monkey wrench into the process. In fact, that's the phrase he'd used to his aides: "Throw a monkey wrench in the peace process."
0: That's insane, that you would disrupt a a, a wartime peace process yeah. in order to win a presidential election. This that's yeah. high treason. Um, so, so some to collude yeah. with a foreign power to keep America at war against the efforts of your own government. How many more people died that didn't need to? But nobody on the Democrat side dared go public with it because it was so awful and so blatant that it would have undermined the presidency, undermined trust in politics. And to prove it, they would have to admit Uh, how many people they were wiretapping and what was really Uh, going on there. So I guess the thinking is he felt that it would irrevocably discredit the presidency if the public knew all these things that were going on, the wiretapping of each other, the, you know... yeah negotiating with foreign powers to avoid peace. Yeah. But then I, I guess, you know, Nixon ended up discrediting the presidency anyway, <laughs> once he got to office. But uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: He managed to do it anyway. Yeah. So the more details of this were uncovered uh, by Nixon's biographer in his 2018 book, Angela. It's called Richard Nixon, A Life by John A. Farrell.
0: By who? By who?
1: By, by John A. Farrell. John who? And I've had tweets. John A. A Farrell, not O Farrell. I've had tweets congratulating me on this masterful (laughs) and scholarly work. and uh, Well, I'm taking it, Angela. Well done, me. It's 750 pages. I've not read it. Pulitzer Prize nominated, (laughs) Ah. John A Farrell. Say it quickly and people will think it's the same bloke who wrote those facetious history books with no primary research whatsoever. John A Farrell. John A Farrell. (laughs) John A Farrell.
0: Have you read, oh, that brilliant book by John A Farrell. (laughs) (laughs) So, election day (laughs) comes. 5th of November 1968. Uh, also on the ticket, um, apart from Nixon yeah. and uh, Humphrey, was Charlene Mitchell, who was the first African American to stand for president. Uh, she ran for the Communist Party, USA. And spoiler alert, John, the black female communist did not win the American election. What a oh, shocker. God,
1: <laughs> oh. I had no I was on tenterhooks
0: there. I know. Uh The result was really close in the popular vote. uh, 31.7 million votes for Nixon to 31.2 million for Humphrey, uh, with 9.9 million to Wallace. So there were only half a million votes in it.
1: Yes, but the way the uh, system is over there, uh, the Electoral College votes split significantly for Nixon. So if Humphrey could have won California, Ohio and Illinois, all of which he lost by just 3%, then he would have won the election, but Nixon got a majority of the Electoral College votes and he would be president even though one of the Electoral College voters cheated and oh, really? voted for George Wallace. called a faithless elector. Yeah, that's, uh, that's the thing that they're asking people to do during the Trump um, election. Trump was hoping there would be faithless electors. Mm. But yeah, because you, you elect these people, you elect the Electoral College and they're supposed to follow the mandate, but they don't always.
0: Yeah, yeah. So Wallace actually won five states, and is the most recent third-party candidate to win electoral college votes. Yeah, yeah. These are states that were traditionally Democrat states. So the coalition of the Northern Liberals and Southern Democrats has fallen apart. Yeah. And Nixon wins Tennessee and Georgia and North and South Carolina. Those Southern states used to be the only reliable Democrat states in the years when the Republicans have won everywhere else. Um, but they yeah. can never be taken for granted again. Last time round... Um, with the exception of Georgia, they all voted for Trump.
1: Yeah. Well, I should hope that he'd prevent either candidate getting an overall majority in the Electoral College, mm. which would have put the decision into the hands of the House of Representatives, which had a Democratic majority. A weird way of doing things, yeah. but apparently that's, that's the rules.
0: Uh, yeah, so Nixon becomes the 37th President of the United States and would eventually be the only President to resign from that office. We've got a podcast yes. about that, John.
1: We have. Watergate, yeah. listen to guys. Yeah. Uh, postscript, Hubert uh, Humphrey died in 1978 but he rang the now disgraced Nixon from his deathbed to invite him to his funeral. Oh really? Yeah, so Nixon comes but it was the first time he'd been back to Washington since his resignation four years earlier and the disgraced ex-president was shunned by the Washington establishment and he was standing to the side looking lonely and embarrassed and then Jimmy Carter the Democratic president went up to him and embraced him and said, "Welcome home, Mr. President. Welcome home."
0: Wow! Oh. Wow! Good old That's
1: Jimmy Carter. I always said, "Yeah, he's poor. he, was a, he was a, seemed like a nice guy. He really not did. the strongest president ever, but he wasn't. A, he wasn't an evil
0: man, was he? Decent fella. He's still alive, isn't he? Yeah."
1: He is, yeah, yeah. Oh, he was a real Christian, wasn't he? Yeah, it was a... I, I read about this on a Christian website when I googled it. It was
0: like, oh, really?
1: Oh. <laughs> yeah, I'm now converted, Angela. So I'm going to be talking to you after about this.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's why you want to have a chat after the recording. I see. Yeah, yeah. Okay, fine. <laughs> <laughs> so, 1968 was a definite realignment. I think you could say in American politics, and uh, from 1968 yeah. until 2004, Republicans won seven out of ten presidential elections. Um, yeah. The election was a seismic event in the long-term realignment in the Democratic Party support, especially in the South, like we said. And from 1968 until 2004, only two Democrats were elected president, Carter and Clinton.
1: Yeah, both native Uh, southerners.
0: Both native southerners, yeah.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. And... um... The other important result of this election, it led to reforms in how the Democratic Party chose its presidential nominees, uh, and then the Republicans followed suit. Mm. Because of the chaos at the Democratic Convention in '68 in Chicago, new rules reduced the influence of party leaders on the nominating process, and that provided greater representation for minorities, women, youth, and uh, the reforms led most states to adopt laws requiring primary elections instead of just party leaders choosing the delegates. So you forget how under-democratic it used to be.
0: Yeah. There's some states where they still don't have a primaries, aren't there? There's...
1: Oh, probably. Yeah. I, it's, so, it's very complex it's so politics, complex, And every
0: time the election comes around, I try and get my head around it again and then it stays, I get, I go, <laughs> right, I've got this now. And then after the election, I go, oh, I've forgotten how it all works again. Um <laughs> Yeah.
1: So, yeah, that's the, that's the 1968 US presidential election. I think what actually happened is that the yippies did put LSD <laughs> into the drinks of all the politicians, and that explains American politics they've, ever they've since. They've been
0: doing it at every DNC ever since. <laughs>
1: yes. Um, of all the key players, very few still alive, of course, David Eisenhower and Julie Nixon are still happily married.
0: Despite him being Camp David. They're Camp David, I know. Who thought?
1: <laughs> he said, we named this after you, Camp
0: David. Uh, hang on a minute. <laughs> I'm not sure about that.
1: <laughs> Apparently, he is not traumatized by whatever he saw when he went to Richard and P- Patty Nixon's bedroom that night. <laughs> you, have, you have to hope they weren't at it, will um, I'll tell you who else is still alive Robert Kennedy's assassin, Sirhan
0: Sirhan. Oh, really? He's still in
1: prison. Yeah, he's not been let out. He's been in a California jail ever since. Uh, no death penalty in California back then. And all his attempts for parole have been opposed by the Kennedy family. Wow. Uh, uh, and he protests his innocence. He said he doesn't remember doing it and says that there was another gunman and he was a patsy. So, wow. yeah. So, read Nixon Alive by John O'Farrell.
0: In fact, <laughs> by all of fact, John O'Farrell's books.
1: By, by all of John O'Farrell's books. Don't worry about too much about the spelling of the surname. <laughs> Pulitzer Prize nominated. <laughs>
0: We have exciting news. If you want to support us, we now have a brand new membership club. That's right. You can be a We Are History member. And by joining us with a small donation, it means that we can keep making more episodes, release them more regularly. It's just a nice way of making sure that we can keep delivering the podcasts that you know and love us for. This small pledge every month means you get every episode of We Are History a whole week early and... Ad free. Plus, you'll be able to suggest topics for us to dive into in the next series. And if you donate a little bit more, you'll be sent unique We Are history merchandise, mugs and all sorts, and you'll get exclusive access to our Zoom live events and probably a few other bits and bobs along the way. So if you want to find out more about what becoming a member entails and how to become a member, just visit podmasters.co.uk slash we Are History. And we'll see you in the club.
1: We Are History is written and presented by Angela Barnes and John O'Farrell. with audio production by me, Simon Williams. The lead producer is Anne-Marie Luff, and the group editor is Andrew Harrison, with artwork by James Parrott. We Are History is a
0: Podmasters production.